You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I don't want to kill a bunch of time. Uh, one thing that happens for me after being gone for a few weeks is I come back and then forget about uh, what time constraints are like. And so an hour and a half from now, we might still be here if I don't watch it. So we should dive right into Psalm 50, shouldn't we? All right. Uh, let's, let's, let's read Psalm 50 then. Beginning in verse 1, uh, where the Lord says this. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. And before Him is a devouring fire and around Him a, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to Me, My faithful ones, who made a covenant with Me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O My people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen? Um, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that it is uh, for me to preach your word and the privilege that we have as a family to hear your word proclaimed. Pray, Father, that you would come and help us to listen, not just listen, but to hear. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged, even rebuked where need be. Help us to draw close to you as you draw near to us work of your son Jesus. 
But God, that you would expand the image of the cross and the empty tomb and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus this morning. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Psalm 50. Uh, When I read this psalm, uh, my imagination starts to run a little bit. And what I imagine um, in this psalm is a courtroom drama. I don't know how many of you um, have ever stood in a courtroom uh, in front of a judge for some crime that um, you may have committed. I, I know a few of us have, but I imagine that most of us probably haven't. I'm certain that most of us have probably um, watched something like this on TV, so we have a sense of what it's like to be in a courtroom with a judge. Lawyers are present. Got a victim maybe present, or victims, multiple. Usually there, you've got eyewitnesses are being called to testify. You've got a, a jury being assembled as well, so that they can examine the evidence, help render a verdict at some point, and I can imagine some, some curious spectators uh, in the room as well. They're gathered for the show, for entertainment. Um, the feeling of the room that you're in kind of exudes this kind of an atmosphere um, that, that promises that justice is going to be served, right? And then the judge enters the room. When he enters the room, he enters to a standing audience. They're standing to honor him as he enters the room. He sits on this bench that, that kind of sits high above the entire proceeding, giving off this air um, in the room of kind of a, an impartial, you might say, commitment to meeting out the justice uh, that is deserved. If you put yourself in that room for a moment, put yourself in that room. Put yourself in the shoes of the criminal in that room who is on trial. When I do that, I think it can kind of be a bit of a scary experience when you think about it. Especially depending upon the weight of the crime. You think about this, what would you be feeling if you were standing in those shoes in that room and you knew that your crime carried the potential for a life sentence or the death penalty. And maybe that's hard for us to wrap our minds around if you've never been there, right? And maybe that's part of the hardship for us to connect with the essence of the gospel. What do you think you would long for the most? What would you feel if you were in those shoes knowing that you were guilty of the crimes that were about to be displayed across the banner of that courtroom? What would you want the most if you were found to be guilty as charged after all the evidence was gathered and all the testimony was examined? What would you want the most? And what would you be feeling? The two questions. To hold on to those, I want to come back to those near the end, maybe multiple times throughout as we look at the text. Let the text itself come to bear on those questions and our answers. 
first uh, few verses in our text, uh, what happens here is God basically assembles his courtroom, right? When you look at verses 1 through 6, um, God enters the courtroom in front of the entire world. And as he enters the courtroom, he, he does it from a place called Mount Zion. <clears throat> the text here says it's a very beautiful place, basically. He enters into the courtroom in front of the entire world from the top of Mount Zion. This, this is a place in a biblical history that symbolizes something. It, it symbolizes the freedom that we have in Christ, in essence. So, so God the Father, God the righteous judge, enters the courtroom from this beautiful mountain that is the symbol of, of freedom for those who have been ransomed, saved by God. And yet, as he comes as the judge, you also get this sense and this feeling that he's also the law giver and the, the, the law holder, right? He's the one who's going to enforce the law as well. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting picture. He comes into the courtroom from the top of Mount Zion, this symbol of freedom that we have. And, and there is a sense in which there's a little bit of opposition to the symbol of the law. It's not, he's not opposed to it, but that's not where he comes from. We know he's the lawgiver, but, but when he walks into the courtroom, he doesn't come from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law was given. So it's just an interesting... You could probably spend some time just thinking and pondering this. Now, as he shows up in the courtroom, um, what's he clothed in? What goes before him? What comes behind him? What does his entourage look like, so to speak? He shows up in the courtroom, and the psalmist here tells us that it's as though he is clothed in uh, fiery, stormy robes of justice. And as he enters the courtroom, he calls the first witnesses, heaven and earth. It's as though heaven and earth itself has been viewing and watching our lives from the very first moment we drew a breath until the last. He calls heaven and earth to be his witnesses against his covenant people as well as against his enemy. <coughs> what do you think that would be like? Really? Like, you think about being there. What would that be like to be in God's courtroom? And what is God Himself, the righteous judge? What's He like in that space? And when you look at the text, the text tells us that He speaks to the entire earth. That He Himself comes from a perfectly beautiful place. Therefore, He must be the essence of what is perfect and beautiful and right and good. And yet at the same time, with all of his beauty, he's also a devouring fire. He's a consuming storm. He, he has no problem whatsoever going toe-to-toe with his enemies. Face-to-face, nose-to-nose. The heavens proclaim him as the perfect judge over all creation. I personally think that in that moment, if you and I are standing there, I think what's happening is you can hear a pin drop. That's what I think. I think all eyes in the room and in that space have turned to the righteous judge and his confrontation. 
fact, speaking of hearing a pin drop, at the end of verse 6, our psalmist includes a word that you see commonly throughout the psalms, and it's the word Selah. And I remember Patrick in his sermon um, pausing for a moment to speak on that. And Selah simply means to pause in absolute silence to think about what the psalmist has just described. It's similar to what Miss Karen had us do a little while ago, to pause in silence and to think upon Jesus. And in this moment, it's like, hey, you can hear a pin drop. Let's be silent and let's think. Think about it. You imagine being in that courtroom, nose to nose with that judge, with a judge like this. Can you imagine the setting, especially if you're guilty of a crime? Can you imagine this moment, especially if you know that the penalty for your crime is a life sentence that's more like a death sentence? What do you long for? What do you want? Feel. Second thing you notice is that God begins to confront. God literally begins to rebuke and encourage his own people, Israel. Verses 7-15, through 15, he addresses his people. He lets them know that he's not really upset with them for their lack of religious performance. Right? He says, hey, it, it actually seems like they're actually performing quite well. right? Because he says in verse 8 that their burnt offerings are continually before him. You're, you're continuously doing religious stuff. And God basically says that he doesn't want any more sacrifices from his people. And then he goes on to explain that everything in all creation belongs to him. And that if he actually had any need for something, he definitely would not ask his people to fulfill that need. What's going on here? Right? It's a question you kind of have to ask. And he's, asking in, he's asking rhetorical questions that are meant to give us the obvious answer. Why does God not want His people to fulfill their religious obligations? Is that really what He's saying? What's the deal with this rant about not needing anything from them? When you, when you dig into all of that, you, you, you start to get this, this sense of kind of what's going on. As I read through it, it seems like Israel is guilty of believing that God somehow needed them, maybe. Like God somehow was relying on their religious performance. Um, and maybe they had become proud of their religious performance. Maybe they began to think that God needed them to do Him a favor. And the reality is that God doesn't need anyone, right? And so what God does here is He just basically reminds Israel, hey, I don't need favors, okay? I don't, I don't need favors from anyone. And he basically tells Israel, hey, you should offer your religious performance out of gratitude for me as your Savior and your provider, and then continue looking to me for deliverance. In essence, I think what God is doing here is he's saying that Israel is simply guilty of believing that he depends upon their religious performance, which at that point makes their religious performance empty. It makes it a routine that has no meaning. 
In reality, what Israel needs to do is they need to be reminded that they are supposed to depend upon God alone. I'm sure we can all identify with that when we get places in our lives where we start going through the motions, right? We start reading our Bible just to read our Bible. We start showing up at church just to show up at church, and there's no sense of growth there. There's no sense of desire there. There's no sense of want there for God. Israel had simply forgotten that their religious performance was not supposed to be a circus act for their own entertainment. They'd forgotten that their, their, their religious performance was not meant to be some kind of performance for God necessarily. To God, yes, not for God necessarily. Their, their religious acts were supposed to be done in essence, so that they would be reminded of their own great need for God. The, the, their religious uh, um, disciplines were meant to continuously form and shape their hearts and their minds to be reminded that, hey, I need God in every second and moment of my life. But somehow, somehow things had shifted. They needed to be reminded of their great need for God, right? They needed to be reminded of all that God had done to redeem them. They needed to worship God in spirit and in truth, but instead they started to get it backwards. You think of ways that this happens for us. You slip into this kind of sin. Um, it's the kind of sin where we begin to think that God needs our religious performance. It's that place where you kind of begin to think that you're self-sufficient. Begin to think that God's kind of like giving you a pat on the back for your good behavior, maybe. Easy um, to begin to think that God needs us to pay our tithes. God needs us to attend church gatherings. He needs us to serve on leadership teams or to study the Bible or pray, evangelize, so on and so forth. And little bit by little bit, what I think happens in, in, in that mindset, it becomes... Um, responsibility and it becomes performance um, rather than actions of love to a Savior who saved us. And little bit by little bit, our attitude changes. We begin to think that we're better than we really are. Uh, begin to tell God about all the things we're doing to please Him. Or maybe we, we begin to shift into this place where we begin to tell God all the things that we're doing um, to bring attention to His name. Look, God, I did all these things to bring attention to Your name. And that, it begins to happen subtly deep down inside. As if God actually needs us to do this, right? As if He can't just proclaim His own glory through all of creation, right? And pretty soon what happens in this really, I would say almost like a deceptive kind of a mindset and shift is that uh, we get to this place where we are not grateful anymore in our service towards Him. Uh, we don't draw close to Him in prayer. We just say a routine prayer as we leave for work in the morning. Um, we don't read His Word with a sense of awe and humility um, and wonder and amazement and desire. We just read His Word because we need to read that little passage that comes up on our Bible app every morning. Passage of the day gets us through. And really at that point, I don't even think we're eating carrots, are we? We're eating scraps and leftovers. 
That was a great illustration, by the way. Instead of all those things, this passionate pursuit of loving God and knowing God and walking in the power of His presence, um, we wind up offering a dead, cold performance on a platter. Try to prove just how worthy we are of His love. Look at what I did. And in those moments, what happens is the object of our worship shifts away from the Creator to the created. And in those moments, we become guilty of offering up what I think the Bible calls obscene worship. We offer up obscene worship to the One who saved us as we literally worship our own performance. Imagine being guilty of that crime. Standing in God's courtroom, face to face with the only perfect being whom you have belittled and betrayed. What does that feel like to you? What do you long for in that moment? What do you want the most? In our text, God shifts His attention. And in the next few verses, God rebukes, charges the wicked. And at first glance, if you just read through that, this passage, like a lot of us read our daily Bible verse, you might miss it. Um, Because once God has rebuked and encouraged Israel, um, he he moves into verses 16-21 through and he he turns around and he, he calls out a very different group of people. And I think that, that's where we might miss something. There's a very different group of people he's talking to now. And he calls these people on the carpet. He rebukes them and he charges them. And he refers to them as the wicked. The question is, well, what does he say to them? In no uncertain terms. Um, in a very direct, very confrontational manner. God basically stands nose to nose with his enemies. He tells the wicked that they have no right, no place among God's people. You have no right to be here. You have no place among my people. And why? Why does he say that? That seems really harsh to the loving God that we like to draw close to, right? He literally says, hey, you hate discipline. You you hate my correction. Um, They reject God's words, and they're also in the habit of enjoying all things that are evil. He says... These people are the wicked pretenders. They have a look of a Christian maybe on Sunday mornings. They have the look of a Christian maybe in small groups. They might have the look of a Christian on their social media posts. But deep down inside, they are absolutely wicked to the core. They're hypocrites in every sense of the word. In a sense, um, these wicked pretenders, hypocrites, they've... They've recreated God into their own image, right? They have fashioned God into a worthless idol who enjoys every kind of evil the human heart could devise. I think if you or I were that person, that would be a very scary place to be. That's a place of deep blindness, I think. If you think about this, what does that look like in your life, though? just so that we might let God's Word be the mirror that peers into our hearts and souls. It'd be too easy for us to go, well, I'm in that first camp of people. 
I'm God's covenant people. I believe in Jesus. And it wasn't that Israel hadn't you know, done the same thing. They, they would have said, well, yeah, I believe in God. So do the demons. Oh, I'm here. Yeah, well, probably demons around here too. So lest we go, hey, I'm in the first camp. This second camp really doesn't include me. Pretty sure I'm not a hypocrite. Ask that question. What does it look like in your life when you dethrone God? At what points in your life lately have you begun to refashion Him into the image of your own human liking? A ways that you have said, ah, you know, God's okay with that. It's not a big deal. You place yourself not only on the throne in those moments, but you've also tried to place yourself on the judge's bench, the place that you and I do not belong. What does that look like for you to diminish God's character? Here's a couple of ways that we might do this. Um, maybe you don't like the fact that God is a God of wrath. Okay? That's hard for you to accept. Uh, maybe you find it hard to accept that God is the God of justice. Maybe that's hard to accept too. Or maybe there are certain sins that you love to indulge in. You've justified them. Some kind of lame interpretation maybe that says that and those sins aren't really sins today. You know, those are antiquated sins. Or, or maybe oh, that stuff's covered under the blood. That Old Testament law stuff that we see, it doesn't really count. Maybe you don't like being corrected. Does any of us like to be corrected? Maybe it's further than not liking to be corrected. Maybe it's simply that you resist correction. Um, maybe, here's one, maybe you secretly steal from God. Uh, cheat on your taxes, withhold your tithes and offerings, two ways that you would be stealing from God. Maybe you decided to sexual sin, that's not a real thing. Um, marriage between a man and a woman, that's a cultural construct, right? That's just meant to control people. And maybe that doesn't apply to any of us in the room. We know that's police floating around the culture, right? Or maybe it does apply to us in the room, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't say, hey, I just outright walk around lying to people all day long. I don't think this whole deception piece really applies to me. Um, but maybe instead, maybe you withhold the truth. Maybe you only share half-truths. And by doing that, you then actually do practice deceit. You know? Um, maybe, maybe you get a kick out of kicking others while they're down. Maybe you do that by gossiping and slandering him. Gossip and slander is, that's a tough one. I, I don't know how many times a week I'm guilty of that one. Probably a lot more than I really know, you know? And all the while, <laughs> and God says it in this, this text too, all the while you, you have to understand, we have to wrestle with the fact that God's been patient with us in the midst of all that. He's been silent about that, right? He's not come and confronted us. He's not, you know, bolt of lightning. You, know, you ever get that feeling like, ooh, you're going to get hit by a bolt of lightning. I think I need to stay away from that guy. You know, it's like God's maybe withholding that bolt of lightning and he's stayed kind of quiet. His, his patience um, in, in the midst of that hypocrisy as he moves his way through his charges here, he says, hey, 
I've been patient with you. Um, I stayed silent. I haven't said anything until now. My patience has not led you to repentance. Instead, it's led you to double down in your pursuit of that sinful pleasure. Playing the pretender on your car stereo before and after church gatherings. Can you imagine being that fake? Can you imagine being that kind of a poser, right? Standing in that courtroom as God confronts you for your wickedness. As God calls heaven and earth to testify against you. What do you long for in that moment? What are you feeling? <laughs> what do you really think the, sen- the sentence is going to be too? You know, like What's he going to hand down from that judge's bench to you? Scriptures are clear that we all fall short of the glory of God. Each of us is sinful. And the wages of sin is what you earn. Wages are earned. Wages of sin is what? Death. So, if you know that, you know the death penalty is coming, right? Fourth thing that happens in our text is God pronounces the sentence of both parties. After all the charges have been laid out, verses 22-23, all the testimony from eyewitnesses, victims have been given, now time for the judge to proclaim the verdict and assign the sentence for the crimes that have been done. And you've got to think about it. Like, Take yourself out of the shoes of the person who's guilty. Put yourself in the shoes, now in that courtroom, of somebody who's just observing. Right? You've heard all of the testimony. Uh, you, you've, you've seen the evidence. And you go, yeah, guilty. Punishment's got to fit the crime, right? Do the time. Do the crime. You're going to do the time. Yeah, I got it back. Do the crime, you're going to do the time. You can do the time and do the crime. That that all happens too, but... (laughs) In this case, um, God confronts both parties, right? Now He lays out the sentence for both, and He says that the wicked are going to get destroyed, and the repentant are going to be spared. I think that's a simple summary. I envision that the wicked are going to literally get tossed into a wood chipper. That's probably because I'm Italian. But the repentant, those, uh, those who uh, rely on God in, in humble gratitude for their salvation, uh, they're going to be acquitted of their crimes. I, I, that image and that sense and that feeling of what it means to be acquitted when you know that you are absolutely 100% without doubt guilty. Know it. And to be acquitted of the sentence for that crime. I, I, I can't fully grasp it. So you imagine the scene in the courtroom, right? Both parties guilty as charged. One party standing in front of the bench. They're in total defiance of God's righteous rule. Fists balled up. I think that's their look. (laughs) The other party, standing in front of the bench, totally humbled, grateful, 
can't even hardly look up from looking down at the ground because they know. I deserve this. I did this. Nothing I can do. Can't get myself out of what's coming. One party arrogantly believes that they're totally cool with God. They think that because they think that God would do what they would do. They're just going to merely overlook their sins because their sins are just, I don't know, antiquated devices of control maybe. Whatever they've done in their minds to justify. Hard for them to believe that, that they really are fakers, that they're posers, that they're, they're frauds, that they're hypocrites. They're, they're that blind. The other party here um, has been confronted with their sins. Their sins of self-sufficiency, empty worship performance, and, and, and they know. Like, I, I got nothing to do here. I can't save myself outside of the merciful provision of somebody. Please help me. The crazy thing about this image when you think about this courtroom is, is the judge himself, the reality is he's the righteous judge, but he's also the victim. Because <laughs> he's the only perfect being ever. So all sin ultimately finds its problem with a perfect God. And in fact, if we were to move into Psalm 51 this year rather than waiting until next year, you would see David after his sin against Bathsheba. I'm saying, God, against you alone have I sinned. Now the reality is not that David didn't sin against Bathsheba. That's not what you're supposed to hear. Because he did sin against Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was the human victim. What, what David is recognizing in Psalm 51 in that moment, is he's in this room, in this courtroom, and he's recognizing, ultimately, my sins are against a perfect God alone. And he alone is the worst victim in this. But we're not going to move to Psalm 51. We're going to wait till next year. But if you want to read ahead, start now. Be my guest. I encourage you to. You should. I think of this whole, this whole scene, um, to me it's a fascinating scene. It gives me, when I, when I think about this, and when I go, man, what would I be feeling, and what would I be thinking, what would I be wanting, I, I put myself in that room, and I, I feel, I think a sense of terror. I wrote in my notes, horror, but horror reminds me of horror movies. I think it's terror, terror is like a horror movie too, but it's terror, it's fear. But it's, it's an interesting kind of a terror because on the other side, I also know Jesus. And I've trusted in Him. And so there is also at the same time this, this sense of relief, right? I've been asking you all along, what would you feel? What would you long for? <clears throat> Where would you be if you're standing in that room and Jury foreman stands up. Guilty as charged. This is a moment, I think, and, and this, this picture of the courtroom, it's something that I've often come back to and played with over the years. In my mind and in my prayers and my journaling. And um, When I imagine this moment, when all of my sins, I, I always tell Christy, like, there's this phrase I think I use, it's something similar along the lines of, yeah, if you... <laughs> If every sin that I've ever committed, from the secrets of my mind to 
from the outworking of my hands and the desires of my heart, if all those sins were laid out on a canvas, I, I imagine it like uh, you know, those old drive-in movie theaters that you would go to, and you'd sit in your car, and you know, you'd get a little speaker. I don't know how many of you are old enough to... Um, <laughs> You know, put a little speaker there, and you know they come around on roller skates or something, and they get you your popcorn and everything. And then this big screen—I mean, they're, they're massive screens on the sides of buildings and whatnot. And entire communities would come out for the movies nights, and you just used to have the whole community is there, right, watching. And it just—I I imagine it. I imagine these moments, like this courtroom scene, like I'm sitting in the car and I'm thinking, "Boy, I'm here for a really good show," and suddenly on that projector screen. All of the sins in my life that most of you don't know most of. And the whole place like starts to look at me. That's how I imagine that. And in fact, there's I think in my own journey, some of it's because you know I I've growing up I faced a lot of abandonment issues and uh just difficulties growing up in my home and, and so even in, in my marriage to Christy over the years, I think I've said multiple times, like, hey, if you you saw that screen, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't love me anymore. <laughs> so, you know, like the big desire for me is to know that there is something that is true when it comes to this concept of grace mercy, unconditional love. The idea that that somebody that didn't need to would actually step in and remove the penalty and the power and the presence of that big projector screen. So I imagine that moment all my sins have been laid bare before heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is going, yeah, he's guilty. Everybody in the room is nodding their head in agreement. They're like, yeah, I just saw the movie. Guilty. Charged. He deserves a death penalty. That's what the law says. From that one mountain. The beauty is God didn't necessarily come down from that mountain. He came down. Freedom. I imagine what I think I would call the Selah silence in the air. I stand there and I'm waiting for my sentence. Pretty sure it's over. And then out of the middle of nowhere, I think off to my right hand side, the Holy Spirit steps into the room. (laughs) And he steps in as my defense attorney. He says, hey, wait a minute, Judge. There's still another witness? And then Jesus walks in. (laughs) He's the other witness.
Can you imagine that moment? What you would feel? Jesus walks in the room and he says, Hey, hey, Father, my broken body, my shed blood, that's removed his guilt, her guilt. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, infinite amount of distance. The Holy Spirit's over there and he nods in agreement, right? Oh, yeah. Right, I actually have a document here. It's signed, sealed. It belongs to you. In that moment, the Father makes this declaration. He's already made before, but I've never heard it with my person. Not guilty. I love you. That moment. I think is the moment that Psalm 50 sets us up for. Everything I've felt, everything I've longed for, has been fulfilled in those moments in the saving work of our triune Godhead. And the full effects of that bloody cross, the cross of Calvary, the full effects of the empty tomb, the one that was left empty, the day that Jesus rose victorious over Satan's sin and death. The full effects of the promise of heaven where once and for all we will hear, not guilty, enter into my presence for all of eternity. That moment when we experience the full effect of Satan's sin and death being vanquished, that becomes a reality. I think my closing question to us is simple. I don't have much more (laughs) for us other than a simple question. What will your day in court be like? Will Jesus step in for you because you surrendered to Him? And that's my hope for you. My hope for you is that you have My hope for you is that this is what you look forward to. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you're good, you're kind, patient, you're full of justice too. Help us, Father, in these moments to be uh, corrected where we need to be corrected and strengthened and encouraged as well. Uh, Father, please take us to the foot of that bloody cross. Uh, Settle us down in the doorway of that empty tomb and uh, shine forth in front of us the image and the picture of the hope that we have in heaven. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.